If you've ever performed live, maybe it's through an athletic performance, uh, certainly theater, music, speaking, you know the fear of making a mistake, right? When you're in the arena and all eyes are on you, there's a certain very physical and mental response when you mess up. But the interesting thing is, if you don't necessarily tell everybody you messed up, they might not even notice. Often as leaders, we take things way too personally. So what do you do about that? And how can these live performances actually help us become a better leader? And how can our relationship with mistakes and failure actually create more equitable schools for all our students, especially our black and brown students. We're going to talk about all that in today's show. And hey, it's Danny, Chief Ruckus Maker over at Better Leaders, Better Schools. And this podcast is for you, a ruckus maker, because you invest in your continuous growth, you're challenging the status quo, and you're designing the future of school now. And we'll be right back after a few short messages from our show sponsors. Learn how to successfully drive school change and help your diverse stakeholders establish priorities and improve practice in leading change. A certificate in school management and leadership course from Harvard. Leading Change runs from February 15th to March 15th, 2023. Apply by Friday, February 3rd. Enroll by Thursday, February 9th. Get started at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. School leaders know that productive student talk drives student learning. But the average teacher talks 75% of class time. Give your students more opportunities to learn in class by monitoring the talk time for teachers and students. Check out TeachFX for yourself and learn about our special partnership options for ruckus makers at teachfx.com slash BLBS. All students have an opportunity to succeed with Organized Binder, who equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning, whether that's in a distance, hybrid, or traditional educational setting. Learn more at OrganizeBinder.com. Well, hello, Ruckus Makers. Today, I am joined by Dr. Dakota J. Irby, whose life work focuses on creating and sustaining organizations that contribute to Black people's self-determined well-being, development, and positive life outcomes. He's an associate professor at University of Illinois at Chicago in the Department of Educational Policy Studies. He is the author of Stuck Improving, Racial Equity and School Leadership by Harvard Education Press and the picture book, Magical Black Tears, A Protest Story. Welcome to the show, Dr. Irby. Thank you so much for having me on, Danny. I appreciate it. Uh, Pleasure is mine. So we both play guitar. I'm sure you play it much better than I do. But I want to, I'm curious, what has guitar taught you about leadership, especially when it comes to the plateaus of learning? Yeah. So thanks for this question. And I don't know if I'm better than anybody. I just, (laughs) I think a lot of how I think about guitar is in large part, how much of a, um, 
both individual and collective endeavor it is when you're learning. And I think that is leadership too. So one of the things that I've learned is that, you know, uh, there's this kind of back and forth between how much work you can do on your own and how much you can do yourself, how much better you can get yourself. And, you know, there's a limits to that. And then there's also limits to how, I mean, there's, and so the opportunities to work with uh, other people to play with other people, like really expands, you know, the possibilities of what you can do, you know, you can just do so much more in a group and in a collective than you can as an individual. But, you know, there's this back and forth because playing guitar, playing music by yourself is also required too, because there's, you know, muscle memory and repetition uh, that's really important. So you can just do some things, you know, uh, do muscle memory without thinking, right? Yeah. Then there's, and, and that's similar to, you know, how I think about leadership. Like there's certain things, you know, certain decisions that you will make, certain things that you do that are routine that come from just this practice of repetition. But then the creativity requires kind of like a more deeply intellectual kind of thinking approach. Or I think the creativity comes from, uh, you know, being around other music, other musicians that pull out things that you might not have thought of and that you can emulate and see things that they do and try to do things that they do. So, uh, you know, I think that part of I guess if I would say the main way that I would answer that question about like what has guitar taught me is that it's really important to be consistent, uh, to practice what it is that I want to be able to do, uh, but also to take the risks of, you know, playing with other people, trying new things. And anytime you get into one of those group situations where you're playing with other people, it's always going to test you, you know? Right, yeah. yeah. Um, so in no, no situation, even if a song is the same, you never play the song the exact same. You know, it's right. impossible to do. Every situation is new. And... The other thing that I think that I've learned is that there's new directions and beauty and creativity and mistakes. And so sometimes you might hit a wrong note or you might do something that kind of sounds strange and then you kind of just have to go with it. Uh, I also think that, um, you know, when I hit plateaus, what a, one of the things that I've learned is that hitting a plateau really requires like taking a completely different approach. So if I'm learning, if I'm stuck, for example, and like just playing just like the major pentatonic, you know, scale mm-hmm. and that muscle memory is there. And so my fingers want to just do that. And my mind wants to do that because it's so comfortable. The way to break out of that pentatonic is to not try to play it in necessarily. Well, you could try to play it in different positions, but really you should try to play a whole different scale to break you out of just the, you know, the consistency of playing in the major scale, for example, in the major pentatonic, you might want to just say like, okay, I'm going to play in the minor scale, or I'm going to play in a major scale for two weeks straight. You're never going to forget your muscle memory from pentatonic scale. If you go to a different scale and start to play that, it'll help you begin to integrate with that, with that scale that is already locked into your muscle memory. So yeah, I think that the big thing is that. And then the other thing is getting coaching, right? Taking lessons, learning from other people when I feel plateaued. And I think that leaders should be really mindful to seek out coaching, to seek out opportunities to learn. For me personally, I try to give myself a major learning opportunity about every seven years is what I try to do. And so that might mean, you know, enrolling myself into a leadership training program that has nothing to do with my work. Okay. Program call. Yeah. So anyway, so I took this program from a group called Center for Progressive Leaders. 
And it was just totally different than what I was doing in my day job. And then I started to do something similar this year. So I think that just breaking out of a genre or a particular pattern is really important for like overcoming plateaus. Yeah. Well, I think in some ways you're talking about disrupting yourself almost and disrupting the routine. And I, you know, there's the muscle memory is good. And then the leadership like connection to me is, uh, you know, you might have mental models and different ways of approaching different leadership challenges. Uh, and that's good because you don't want to waste a whole bunch of mental energy trying to reinvent, like, how do we solve this challenge all the time? But the yep. one thing, you know, that's coming through with this music metaphor that I'm hearing from you is the importance of uh, disrupting that automatic as well so that you can uh, break out of plateaus and lead to more growth. And so there are a number of things that you said there, like playing different scales, getting around different kinds of people, investing in programs and coaching, which, of course, as a coach to school leaders, I love hearing that. Oh, yeah, that's you know, that's what I do. I support Every school leader who wants to grow, get mentorship and level up, like that's my jam. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. Let's make this choose your own adventure because two of the threads I want to pull on, one has to do with the different groups you might play with live, or you mentioned something interesting about mistakes and failure. So where do you want to take the conversation? And then I'll throw uh, a question out there. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, maybe we can go with uh, mistakes and failure. Uh, oh, all right. Yeah. So you talked to, and I heard the wrong note as you played it too, right? And then you get this response while you're playing live and like, whoa, tell me what you do with the mistakes in that moment, right? Because uh, I would want to hide like immediately, right? Yeah. Who heard it? Who's looking at me now? And that kind of thing. But that actually makes it really about myself and not about the audience and who I'm trying to serve or the band and that kind. So just talk to me how you process a mistake as it's happening live too, right? When you're performing. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I like about planning groups is that, you know, if you make a mistake, you can just drop out. Like It's, it's very difficult <laughs> for everybody to make a mistake at the same time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. So if you make a mistake, you can just drop out completely and just right. like enjoy it, soak in and then jump back in when you're ready. But so that's one thing is that, which is important to have a good team, right? A good band, yeah, yeah, good people yeah. playing with you is that you can drop off. You, the, uh, the, you know, the failure, the mistake is less consequential when you have a good squad, you know? So, yeah. but I, this was a challenge that, you know, was very difficult for me early on, because like you mentioned, I would want to kind of just stop and I have all these things playing in my head. And one of the things that I learned to do was to just play through mistakes. And so playing through mistakes, you know, they happen, anticipating them, knowing they're going to happen, uh, resisting the want and the need for for perfection. So Mm -hmm. going into a situation, a performance, whether it's with the group or whether it's solo, understanding that I'm going to make mistakes. And if I understand that and I accept that, then it allows me to give myself like grace and permission to play through it because I knew it was going to happen. I anticipated it. And so I played through But the interesting thing when we was talking about, you know, practicing and repetition, one of the things that I had to learn when I would practice is that, and this was both when I play solo and I'm practicing, as well as when I'm practicing with the band, is you have to announce, we're just going to play through the entire song. We're going to play through the mistakes, right? We're not going to stop in the middle of practice. If somebody makes a mistake or anybody makes a mistake or we all make a mistake, we're going to find our way back to the course and then we're just going to finish the song. And I think that changed the way that I performed because, you know, 
even when you're practicing, you make mistakes. And so you just get used to the idea of like, you know, making mistakes. And so my general tendency is is to practice and anticipate them, practice them. And that helps in the real moment when you're, you know, performing and you just kind of play through. Now, recently I did have a performance where I totally just forgot the chord progression and I just kept going and just kind of played something else. And the amazing thing, as you mentioned, is that unless there's other musicians that are really closely paying attention to what you're doing, most people won't notice and they won't remember. So even if they do notice in the context of, you know, a 45 minute performance or a 30 minute performance, nobody remembers the three seconds because that's long. That's how long the mistakes last, like three to three to five seconds. And the whole scheme of things, nobody remembers that three to five seconds. That's kind of how, you know, I think about, you know, mistakes is, again, just like practicing for mistakes and practicing and rehearsing in a way that allows me to be able to kind of make mistakes and build a capacity to play through them. Yeah, I appreciate those ideas. And just to reflect back to the ruckus maker listening, like who do you have a strong team built around you? So when you need a minute to recover or recuperate, or the stakes are high and you just need to collect yourself, do you have that team to support you? And then the idea of finding mistakes, right? Realizing they're going to happen, welcome them, set an intention that we're going to play through them. Reminds me of my second favorite book of all time called The Art of Possibility. And within there, the two authors describe these 12 practices. And one of them had to do with just redefining skiing and that you're going to fall down when you ski, Right. So you have the accident, it could ruin the whole trip or whatever, right? Or you could say, hey, these conditions are a bit more icy than usual. I'm probably going to fall a lot. So let's just have fun. And I had to tell that myself to myself because I was hiking the other day in the Adirondacks up here in upstate New York. And uh, anyways, it was slippery, right? There's people around and they're probably not like taking notes. Oh, look how many times Danny slept, right? right? Or if you're about to fall. And so I just redefined, like, if I do start to slip, that just means I'm out here having fun on a mountain. And who cares, like, who sees it, if anybody at all? And that just, that that approach made me looser as I hiked. And I actually didn't fall. I slipped a lot. And I was like, whoa, you know, but uh, I, I actually didn't fall, which was kind of interesting because I think I took the pressure off. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Doctor, I want to see if there's any more connections before we move on from the music stuff. But, you know, just playing live, everybody's looking, right? They're there for the performance. And I think as a leader, like, we feel like we always need to be on, you know, and people are watching as well. So any parallels there for you between live performance and leadership and being on? Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things that I try to focus on is not only the music, but and the performance, but really trying to make a connection with the people, right? And so yeah, yeah. I really try to pay as much attention to movement, how we're moving together, whether we're in sync together, whether we're having fun, like those things matter. And most of the time when I perform a show and I finish, I don't necessarily remember how the song sounded. I remember how I felt playing them. And so you know, and I think that people pick up on that vibe. Like when I go to shows and I see people kind of vibing together and they're looking yeah. at each other and you see these glances and you see these smiles, that's really the kind of like energy that I try to bring is to make sure that 
we're having fun together, that we're vibing. And so even when I think about like where I, you know, my uh, friend, my music buddies and I are like collaborating and preparing for a show. Sometimes I'll just be like, you know, we know the chords. We, we generally know the changes. Let's, and I'll try to give people something in terms of like feel that they can relate to. So I'll say, let's play this like we're in the basement, mm. right? Or, hey, let's play this like we're at, you know, Lollapalooza, like we're playing at Lollapalooza. Like, let's go big. So I try to like really capture the feel and then try to kind of give the kind of energy that goes with the feeling that I'm hoping it will capture. Because, you know, there's songs that can, you know, you can play them and perform them a bunch of different ways. The same exact song, same chord progressions. You might slow down a tempo. You might come in and out of the changes differently. But the things that I find are really beautiful is when I can kind of look at somebody and we hold that change. We hold a transition for a moment and then we all drop in right at the same time. And for me, that's about a people connection. And the people connection to me is the thing that actually makes the musical performance work. I think that people love to hear music, but I think that human beings like to see other human beings in sync and connected with one another. Yeah. And so I think about that in terms of leadership as well, because I feel like leaders really need to think about how to be a kind of connections with the, you know, the people that they're that's on their team that they're performing with. Sure. Yeah, that's cool. I like the basement or Lollapalooza idea. Sometimes what I ask myself uh, when I need to change my energy or I'm just, I'm stuck. I say, what would the three-year like future me who's better and more optimized and, you know, more valuable and this kind of stuff, how would he show up in this moment? Mm-hmm. You know, that's dope. And, and that, that always gets me through the rut, you know, yeah, every yeah. single time. Cause I don't yeah. want to let him down. Like, who am I to do that? Yeah. So yeah. I always step it up, but I like that Lollapalooza in the basement piece. Yeah. It's we all had, about, um, like, I, yeah. I give you like, we had a, uh, we did a performance one time and there was this band that had like a lot of, they were like, you know, high tempo, a lot of energy horns. And we were just yeah. a three piece. Okay. And okay. so I was like, you know, we had rehearsed how our set was going to go. And I was like, you know, I just said, let's lay it all back. Let's lay it back. The sun's going to be going down. We were playing when the sun was going down. This was outside. I was like, let's lay it back. Let's get into our, let's get into our Frankie Beverly, Mays, white linen outside mood. And we just laid the whole thing back. And it was just so smooth because it was so different from, you know, what the band before us had done in terms of the level of intensity. So we really, you know, it was on a big stage, but we played it in a very kind of pulled back, laid back way. It really resonated with folks and it felt good. It really felt good. So, yeah. That's being in tune, right? With the energy of the people in the room and that kind of stuff. So uh, very cool. We could talk about this forever. Yeah. I want to bring your daughter into the conversation because she told you something when she was around six, maybe that really impacted you. And if you could unpack the significance of this uh, uh, encouragement she gave to you, which was, if you want to be a rock star, you have to practice and take risks. <laughs> what, yeah. that, what does that mean to you? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean... It was inter- it was interesting because I think, you know, connecting it to, you know, leader and, you know, being a parent and being a person who's a leader in her life, like, you know, you're going to get back what you give, you know? And so she was basically using something that I've always said to her, like at the time, I think it might've been like, you learned how to ride a bicycle and like, she's frustrated because she can't do it. I'm like, well, you'll be able to, you're never going to be able to be a the cyclist you want to be if you don't practice, if you don't take the risk, right? You're going to fall. So for example, one of the things that I, 
taught her first, both of my children, is I took their training wheels and stuff off. We never did training wheels. And when they were ready to start to, you know, learn how to ride the bike, the very first thing that I taught them was how to fall. And I was like, if you learn how to fall and you realize that like you can fall without really hurting yourself, and you know how to put your feet out. And so I literally, <laughs> it seems kind of crazy, but I would take the back of their bike and I would kind of jerk them around and be like, put your <laughs> leg out, put your leg out. Yeah. So I'm like, if you can learn how to fall, um, you know, you're going to fall. So learn how to fall. Right. Mm-hmm. And after that, they just had the confidence to just try all kind of things. And everybody would say like, you know, how did you teach your kids how to ride their bicycle so long? I'm like, I helped them go over the fear of the fall first. And then I told them that now you got to start practicing the things that you want to do because you know that if you fall, you won't, you know, hurt yourself. So, you know, when I, when she told me that, that was after I basically stopped playing guitar for, you know, probably about four years. Uh, I moved from Milwaukee to Chicago. Uh, when she was growing up, me and my friends would play in our basement pretty much every Friday. So she heard music every Friday night, you know, you could hear out on the street, but we would, you know, play pretty loud. We would turn up and play music sure. every night. And then when I moved to Chicago, uh, I lost the music community that I had in Milwaukee. And so I just really didn't play much. I might pull my guitar out once every three weeks, tinker around, do some, you know, finger exercises. And then, you know, that day that she told me that, I don't know where it came from. She just, you know, asked me why I haven't been playing my guitar. And I told her, you know, like, well, you know, I got a lot of things on my plate. You know, I'm kind of busy. And she was like, well, you know you want to be a rock star, don't you? And I was like, well, I would love to be a rock star. She was like, well, you know, how are you going to be a rock star if you don't practice, you know? <laughs> and that was the, when she told me that next week, I took my guitar and I went to an open mic uh, and performed at an open mic for the first time in like four years. So this is going from being in a band in Milwaukee that, you know, would get good shows at the spots with the nice sound systems and the sound people. Yeah, yeah. Then coming to Chicago and being like, you know, which I still am in Chicago, like, you know, not known at all. Like, you know, if I walk in, nobody knows who I am. It's just me and my guitar. But the thing is that taking the step and out into a place and being willing to play when I'm brand new, nobody knows who I am. Uh, I haven't practiced. I haven't been practicing, but I'm going to just take my guitar out and go to this open mic and just play a song or two, see what happens. And that was really what got me back into playing. That was at the beginning of the pandemic uh, because I had stopped for about four years. Um, so it was really cool to get my own, a taste of my own medicine in terms of, you know, her telling me what I need to do if I want to actually do something. So it was good. Yeah. She's been watching and listening to all those lessons you've been teaching her and reflecting them right back at you. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now we all take, she takes guitar. She's learning guitar oh, now. Cool. She takes yeah. lessons. I decided to start back taking lessons during the pandemic. And so sure. me, her and my son, they're uh, seven and nine now. Uh, and then, you know, me, all three of us take, you know, lessons every week. So it's been good. And it's, I have to give her the credit for me picking a guitar back up and for us all taking lessons and that sort of thing. Brilliant. All right. Well, we've been talking music a lot. I want to now transition to uh, your work with schools. And I'd love for you to talk to me and the Ruckus Maker listening on how to strengthen a school community. Like, what would be the conditions if you wanted to do that? Yeah, so I think that a lot of what I've been talking about are things that I think are important for a broader community of people. Like, really placing relationships at the center of what's happening in a school. Thinking about creating and cultivating kind of space where mistakes are part of the process where they're welcome, mm-hmm. where they're expected. I mean, you know, it would be, you know, an awesome kind of school if children and adults both 
could go into a school and know that not only will you make mistakes, but if you're engaged in the kind of teaching, learning and leading that's required to help push students and to push adults in the building, that's going to be a part of what is happening at that particular school. So I think the conditions are really about, you know, certain routines that are important to provide structure and that sort of thing. But then also knowing that, you know, mistakes are part of the creative process and that you're really working to help people be creative to problem solve, right? To understand how to work through problems. And all of that requires this kind of uh, commitment to, you know, creating conditions where people can try things uh, that that seems scary in other places, right? So those are some of the conditions that I think are really important. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned at the top, kind of like this unrelenting focus on like learning, right? And learning every day. You know, one of the things that I ask my children when they, when I pick them up from school every day is, you know, tell me about something that you learned that's exciting, something that you learned maybe that confuses you, that you want to know more about. But I'm always asking them, I don't ask the generic question, like how was school? I ask, tell me about something you learned. And uh, it's pretty cool because they don't have to say, oh, this was exciting. They can say, this was confusing. I was trying to learn something that confused me or this troubled me, or, you know, I have more questions about this. And so for me, that's a sign that a school is doing what it needs to do is that everybody should be able to leave out and talk about the things that they're learning or something that they mm-hmm. learned when they leave the building that particular day. Absolutely. I really appreciate that. That's a great question, you know, to uh, ask students, ask your faculty. We all should be learning as a part of a learning organization. My, my number one question I love to ask at the end of coaching sessions or uh, workshops I might lead is what was your number one insight, you know, from today? Because it's just a different frame of learning, but mm-hmm. it reminds people of the value. Like we did something special here. If you were, you know, if you have a pulse and we're paying attention, like got something. And then mm-hmm. it, it reminds me of uh, Sarah Blakely's dad. Sarah, you know, founded Spanx, right? And multi-cabillionaire uh, type company now. But her dad always used to ask her, what did you fail at today, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like you with the girls and put putting the feet down, riding the bike. But if we want to make mistakes okay and say that we learn from failure, like how do we normalize it and build it into sort of the normal day-to-day reflection? So yeah, um, appreciate what you're bringing here uh, with those questions. Yeah, so relationships, m- mistakes, learning uh, were some of those conditions. Uh, and, you know, let's think about your kids, but other black and brown students, you know, what can schools do to create powerful learning experiences for our students that are black and brown? Yeah, well, you know, I think that this is one of the key things that is, even as we're talking about this idea of being able to take risks, being able to, you know, fail at certain things like the unfortunate reality is that in our society, taking risks come with different consequences for different people, right? Like, yeah. Women leaders can't take the kind of risk that like, me, you know, men leaders take, for example. Right. Mm-hmm. LGBTQ people are afforded the opportunity to take the kinds of risks or to fail. Failure brings on kind of harsh judgment, critique and criticism for certain people and for other people, not so much. So I think one of the ways that I like to think about equity and opportunity is that do young people have the opportunity to try things out and to fail? And a lot of times. The commitment to making sure students, you know, have, you know, excellent outcomes means that people really kind of pressure, especially like black and brown students to like become like really good at kind of like these routine things. And you have to be able to do this and you have to be able to do this. 
Whereas students who aren't going to be judged as harshly and who are going to have more, who have more opportunities in society have more opportunities to take risks. You know, it's the same way if we think about, you know, leaders in terms of like entrepreneurship or whatever, like, you know, most entrepreneurs have failed at multiple businesses before uh, they actually get the one that hit the one that works well. Well, if you're black and you don't have generational wealth, you know, and your loans come from your family and friends and your own bank account, you only have two times to try, right? So I think about, you know, Gloria Lassen Billings writes about this topic of um, not only educational gaps and uh, opportunities, but she writes about this idea of educational debt and there's a there's a debt. And so if we think about the debt that, you know, Black uh, students in particular, uh, Black people in the United States have inherited over time, it means that we don't have the wealth and the resources uh, to be able to afford to kind of make mistakes and that sort of thing. So I think I personally love to see schools where people just get to take opportunities. As much as people don't like Kanye West, I think that like he gets to take, he just can take all the risks that he wants to take, right? It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk, these people can take all the risks and try whatever they want to try. They, you know, like literally try to send a rocket to space. You know what I mean? Like how many attempts do you get to make before you can actually make that happen? And so I think in the same schools that recognize the importance of creativity, mistakes, failure, risk-taking as things that create possibility is really important. And so I know that's a very philosophical response but I would be happy and thrilled if more schools that had uh, black and brown children or schools that are predominantly white that serve black and brown children gave them, you know, opportunities to learn from and build on uh, mistakes and, you know, give them opportunities to be creative and that sort of thing. Got it. Well, Dr. Ruby, I'm really enjoying our uh, conversation. We're going to take a quick break to get in some messages from our sponsors. But when we get back, I'd love to ask you, Uh, how racial equity breakthroughs are indicators of progress. Learn how to successfully drive school change and help your diverse stakeholders establish priorities and improve practice in leading change. A certificate in school management and leadership course from Harvard. Topics include adaptive leadership, culture, equity, and more. Leading Change runs from February 15th to March 15th, 2023. Apply by Friday, February 3rd. Enroll by Thursday, February 9th. Get started at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Hey, Ruckus Maker. TeachFX has been an incredible sponsor over the years, and they do great work helping educators be mindful and reflective about how their talk, right, and how much talk they have in a classroom impacts student learning. Now, don't just take it from me that TeachFX is awesome, and it surely is, but check out what some real educators have to say about using TeachFX in the classroom. I will be the teacher I want to be when I'm a, like no longer a teacher, and I'm truly just a facilitator of class. Mm-hmm. And I think that TeachFX is a tool that will allow me to get there more so than like any other tool I've used. I wanted the students to be speaking more with each other. I incorporated more opportunities for students to speak in the target language to each other. And I recorded that and that's what the data showed. So it helped me reflect on the purpose um, and what is best for my students. Today's show is brought to you by Organized Binder. Organized Binder develops the skills and habits all students need for success. 
During these uncertain times of distance learning and hybrid education settings, Organized Binder equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning routines so that all students have an opportunity to succeed, whether at home or in the classroom. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com. All right, and we're back with Dr. Dakota J. Irby, and Dr. Irby has two books you should check out. One is Stuck Improving, Racial Equity and School Leadership, and then also check out Magical Black Tears, a protest story. So as I mentioned before the break, Dr. Irby, I'd love to ask you one last question before we get to the questions I ask all of my guests. But essentially, you know, talk to us about racial equity breakthroughs and how they act as indicators of progress. Yeah. So in my book, Stuck Improving Racial Equity in School Leadership, I basically make this argument that most schools, communities lack the organizational capacity to create the kinds of conditions that allow them to kind of treat black and brown students better and provide them with better educational opportunities, experiences and outcomes. And so uh, what I argue is that, you know, there's an overemphasis on what I call uh, equity by the numbers. And so looking at like, you know, just you know, the number of students that go into like the college track classroom or the number of students who go to, you know, who are involved in extracurricular activities. And what I try to do is really paint a picture of this, a different kind of outcome that is more process oriented called equity breakthroughs. And so in the final chapter of the book, I write about this concept. And basically what I argue is that a breakthrough is an instance where a particular kind of practice from a leader or a teacher disrupts what would typically happen in the school. And in the process of disrupting what would typically happen in the school, it creates a new sense of possibility and a more expansive opportunity for everybody that's involved. So to give a concrete example of what that actually entails, I write about a science teacher who for years, you know, taught science in a very kind of, you know, kind of direct instruction way through lectures and reading and that sort of thing. And then the student's assessment was a test. And so he knew over the years that, you know, black students didn't perform well in his classes. And so as part of the racial equity reforms uh, in the school, he decided to give students, again, an opportunity to be creative and how they wanted to demonstrate their understanding of what they were learning. So we started there with you can choose if you want to take a paper test, if you want to write an essay, if you want to do some kind of practice if, uh, based assessment or performance based assessment or project. And so what many of the black students chose was to do like these capstone projects. So this was 100 points. They put all of their eggs into one basket and said, this is what I want to try to do. Right. I want to do a capstone type approach to demonstrating what I learned in this class that totally transformed their level of engagement because they weren't taking a test or, you know, 10 quizzes or four quizzes that were 25 points each. They put all their eggs in one basket, but that gave them time to work through mistakes, to figure things out, to talk with their teacher, to consult the textbook and other resources to figure out how to actually demonstrate their knowledge of whatever this kind of science concept was. And What happened is that this created a different set of like relationships between this teacher and students. So he talks about how previously, again, you know, black students didn't do well in his class, but all of a sudden his lunch breaks were times where students would come and talk to him about like, I'm trying to figure out this piece. 
And I want to talk you through my ideas in advance of like, you know, putting together my capstone project, right. As a part of the capstone project. He also talked about through engaging students in this particular kind of process, parents were coming to parent teacher night that had never come before because people wanted their students, wanted their parents to meet this teacher or the parents had heard so much or saw their students put so much effort into their science that they wanted to meet the teacher who like sparked their interest in science. And so I call this a breakthrough and this was a breakthrough moment. And the reason that I like, I want to name them in the book is because this particular kind of experience, this transformative experience between a teacher, a student, and what the student is learning and how the teacher is facilitating that learning process. We don't see that when the student goes to, for example, AP science class, right? AP biology. But that breakthrough is the thing that was sparking the interest of those students to give them the sense of possibility that they should and could go a science-related, a STEM-related field. And so why like why it's so important to name these breakthroughs is because I don't, I'm mindful to not let schools that are committed to creating more equitable learning opportunities for students of color to let these particular moments go unnoticed. And if we don't name them and we don't know them when they happen, then they go unnoticed and we don't have the opportunity to, you know, as we go back to the top of the you know podcast, we don't have the opportunity to use these differences to like break out of a particular scale, yeah. play a different Automatic. scale. Right. Yeah. You know, because this teacher for years was just doing, he was in the major pentatonic. Mm-hmm. That was it. And you can do a lot with the major pentatonic, but, you know, moving to, a different, uh, not even a different position, but, you know, the assessment practices, this capstone process being something that's a totally different, you know, uh, you know, progression. It's not a one for five anymore, right? We're in a different genre. Allow for students to be able to thrive in ways that maybe this student's cultural connection isn't to just a one five, you know, maybe it's something different. Maybe the uh, major scale as opposed to the major pentatonic resonates with this particular student and they can shine in a concert that is he- that, that relies heavily on the major scale or, you know, uh, or the minor scale as opposed to like the, you know, the pentatonic scale. So anyway, going back to the music metaphor, but my point is that these breakthroughs are really important and I wanted to name them uh, so that people can start to pay attention to when those sorts of things happen. Um, they show up in terms of smiles, mm-hmm. people having fun in the learning process, even though learning can be challenging and hard, you know, once they kind of break through, there's this sense of accomplishment and the sense of possibility that accompanies and counterbalances the struggle that was associated with getting to whatever particular point was. And so those are the kind of experiences that I saw happening in the school that I don't see reflected in any of the kind of writing and literature about what it means to have what the outcomes of a school that is doing a really good job working with black and brown students actually. Yeah. I love that. It was so practical, you know, the picture you painted and uh, allowing the students to have choice and uh, authority and autonomy in terms of like how they wanted to proceed to demonstrate their knowledge was a really cool part of that. And then I can't help but think that, you know, you and the teacher are reading the room just like you do with a live, ex, you know, live performance or maybe when I'm hosting a live experience, but that energy and the people, like that's a huge component again. And uh, the classroom 
could be and should be like this exciting place where you see, like you said, the smiles or the vibing and, you know, the fact that they're connecting with each other and the content and the larger school experience. Yeah. And you can, you can create that. Yeah. I want to add this one. uh, This was something that I thought was really powerful too, that in the, you know, that I write about in the book for this particular uh, teacher, but he mentioned how this approach of not staying in one particular, you know, having everything be one particular kind of way was less efficient. It was more intellectually challenging. And it actually, he said, took more time and energy than the previous way that he had done things like, you know, muscle memory. This is what I do every year, right? Come in, here's the syllabus, here's what you do, here's the test, here's how I grade, everything. So this new approach took a lot more energy. He acknowledged that, but also said, but I would never go back to doing what I did before because this approach How could you? is so much more fulfilling. Right? Well, fulfilling, but the kids you're missing the kid, yeah. are engaged. They're getting They're engaged. it. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, you know, but I mean, I, the reason I wanted to bring that up is because I think some people prioritize the efficiency, right? Sure. This is the system. This is what I've been doing. I think part of why I wanted to bring that up is that the system is built around a different set of values. Most schools are built around efficiency, compliance, control, adult authority, and expertise. And so to break from that, like, it, and, and in particular, a lot of times those teachers who do all of those things get what I call like false positive. They get good results because they're doing the same thing. It's like, if I play the same song every night, mm-hmm. my audience probably going to be pretty good. I know when the crowd is going to react to a particular part. I know the exact same solo. So I could get these positives from doing that same thing that's efficient and straightforward that I do every time. Right. But the fulfillment and the excitement and the joy and the possibility is a different set of kind of like values. Or, for example, the crowd participation. I could be doing something and saying like, look, I want to just like make sure that nobody. But then it's different when you have those musicians that will everything will pause and they'll say, all right, now we're going to do a little bit of call and response. And then you got to get the you got to get in sync with the audience and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Doesn't feel the same every time, but it's magical because the audience gets to participate mm-hmm. in a different way. So I think that those are the kind of things. So really, why I mentioned that is I want to paint a different picture between what some people really value and really hold to is like this efficiency and what's been done in the past. We're going to do the same thing. We know the outcome that it's going to give us. There's a different way of being, and schools over rely on version A. Uh, and not so much a version B because people want to be comfortable and in control uh, and be able to predict what's going to happen. Yeah, I've named it a different way because, uh, you know, my thing is like ruckus makers. So the efficient way, the re- over-reliance on adult, you know, knowledge, authority, experience, that kind of stuff. And just the standard operating procedure. I call that a play it safe principle versus mm. my favorite kind of leader who's a ruckus maker, yeah. which I define three parts, right? Invest in your continuous growth. The last part's designing the future of school now, which I think we're touching on. But that middle part that every ruckus maker really amplifies is challenging the status quo. How do yeah. we make it better? And that kind of thing. So I really, I mean, you did a masterclass here. This has been a great podcast for sure. And, uh, you know, I hope uh, the ruckus maker listening is excited as I am, you know, and what I've learned in, in the potential and possibility that you've, you know, you've described. So. Last few questions I asked all my guests, Dr. Irby. First one is, uh, if you could put a message on 
all school marquees around the world just for one day, what would your message be? Well, I use my, what I always say a lot, uh, struggle is necessary, progress is possible, and equity is imperative. And now if Dr. Irby was building his dream school from the ground up, you're not limited by any resources, your only limitation is actually your imagination. How would you build this school? What would be the three Gaudi principles? Yeah, so I think, uh, so my school would not be a building. It would be a community of people, right? School of fish, right? Uh, School of people, right? School of learners. It would be based on, so it wouldn't be necessarily a building. It could be a campus with several buildings, but I would want to have multiple different kinds of resources for people to be, you know, engaged in a kind of learning process, green space, water, buildings that they can go in and out of. And so I'm thinking more about like a community that uh, and, and a built physical environment that a group of people in the community have access to for the purposes of learning. I think the three guiding principles would be like learn through learn by doing and reflecting on whatever you're doing and your practices. So I would want everything to be problem based, problem posing. And so, you know, you're really solving and addressing kind of like problems that you see and you're using, you know, the uh, traditional kind of, uh, you know, aspects of the curriculum to be able to figure out what you need to do and be learning by doing. The second part would be, I would want it to be intergenerational. I would love if one of the problems that I think is that we group people by ages. I think it's a huge problem and a huge mistake uh, that, you know, in a design flaw uh, of U.S. schooling in particular, I think the schools need to be much more intergenerational. I think that, you know, people of all ages need to be around other people of different ages. So it would be intergenerational so we could learn from one another. And then the third principle would be that the learning will be focused on uh, this interplay between individuals and groups. And so because our society right now is so individualistic, I would lean very heavily towards groups and collectives and groups of students uh, working together to you know, solve problems. That's what real life is mostly about. Individual willpower <laughs> doesn't, you know, is a myth uh, in a way. So I would, I would really be focused on those three things, learning by doing intergenerational learning, and then focusing on and prioritizing groups and teams over individuals. Well, Dr. Irby, we covered a lot of ground on today's podcast of everything we discussed today. What's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? Stay in the struggle. Stay in the struggle. I always remind myself of that. That's what I would want people to know. When you feel like you're struggling, it shows up when it needs to show up, whether that's music or whether it's leadership. You know, it's almost kind of like the process where they say, you know, you know, you're sharpening your sword is a very kind of boring, mundane type thing. But uh, it shows up when you need the sword. Right. Or it shows up when, uh, you know. You're not falling when you're riding that you've, you know, struggled to kind of, you know, learn how to fall and that sort of thing. So my my saying would be to stay in the struggle. Struggle is worthwhile. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, Daniel at BetterLeadersBetterSchools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. 
you can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed. Mm-hmm.